Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So we've got the man, Shane Claiborne, with us this morning. Um, and so excited to be with you. Um, yeah. And, and thank you for taking the time. Absolutely, man. I'm, I'm pumped. Yeah, it's a beautiful little series you're doing. I'm glad to be a part of the conversation. Thank you, man. Well, um, like I said a second ago to you before we kind of jumped on the recording, uh, you've been someone that I've, I've read and followed for a long time, learned from you in a lot of ways. Um, and But just in case people don't know a little bit more about who you are. I'm going to ask you in a minute to kind of share a little bit more of your story. But before that, I want to kind of share a little bit of the, the bio stuff and, and really make you look good. That's going to be my hope here. Uh, so Shane <laughs> I, I, is... They, they weren't listening beforehand. I said, you got to set the bar low so I can only impress people. If you set it high, it's all downhill. So you're ahead. right, man. All right. Well, Shane, um, you know, he's a, he's a speaker, activist, um, best-selling author. He's worked with Mother Teresa in Calcutta founded The Simple Way there in Philadelphia, where he sits right there. It's actually right across the street. Um, he just showed me. Um, he heads up something called Red Letter Christians, which he's going to talk a little bit more about. It's a movement of folks who are committed to living, quote, as if Jesus meant the things he said. How revolutionary, man. <laughs> I love that so much. Um, Shane's books include Jesus for President, Red Letter Revolution, Common Prayer, Executing Grace, and The Irresistible Revolution, and his newest book, beating guns. Um, Shane speaks over a hundred times a year, nationally, internationally. I love this part. He's worked and appeared in Esquire, Spin, Christianity Today, Time, The Wall Street Journal. He's been on everything from Fox News and Al Jazeera to CNN and NPR. Quite the diverse um, group of publications there, man. I love that. Um, and he's also given academic lectures at Harvard, Princeton, Liberty, Notre Dame, and my personal favorite, Duke. If you know me at all, you know that I'm a huge <laughs> Duke fan. Um, and now he's here speaking with us. Um, that's what matters. Now I, I get to be with your people, man. Yeah, exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, I was actually first introduced to you and to your work. Um, I stumbled upon a copy of the Irresistible Revolution at a half price books in Dallas while oh, I was sure. going to seminary. Yeah, I was at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. I was working at churches in the area. Um, and it was so helpful to me, Shane, as I was really trying to reconcile my faith with this increasing pull toward justice that I was feeling. And I, I grew up in settings um, where I was kind of told that those two things were incongruent, you know, um, or at least should be kept very separate. Um, but it was really your words, your reading that I began to see that they weren't incongruent at all. In fact, that my desire for justice actually stemmed from yeah. um, kind of the spirit working within me. Um, and uh, then years later, somehow we connected on Twitter. Um, I actually think, I can't remember exactly when it was, but I was trying to go back and think, I think it was when I tweeted a quote of yours that has become one of my very favorites. And it says this, um, and let, let me preface it by saying, this quote was actually very influential in how we started our church four years ago. Wow, um, that means a lot, man. Yeah, yeah man, we were, my, um, our, our worship pastor, Matt Gonzalez, he and his wife and uh, Emily and me and my wife, Amy, were the four that kind of moved here to, to start this church. And, um, you know, we were 26 years old at the time. 
Um, and here's what the quote says. If we lose a generation of young people in the church, it won't be because we didn't entertain them. It will be because we didn't dare them to do something meaningful with the gospel in light of the world we live in. And man, that's something that like, I really have felt like we, we have tried to do over and over again for years. So man, I just want to say thanks for that and your influence on us. Yeah, absolutely, brother. Well, I'm so pumped to be connected to what you're up to and uh, 26 years old. I mean, that sounds young to us and it is young. It's beautiful, but that's when we have that fire, you know, and I, I think there, there's, there, there, there's something to the fact that Jesus died when he was 33, you know I mean? This was a, a youthful movement. So a lot of things, you know, our community started when we were about 21, 22 years wow. old. So you're, you're young enough to believe that you can do something other people say is impossible. So, yeah. Oh, that's so good. You're hundred percent right, man. Well, that was a little bit of your kind of bio, but obviously it's not like your story story. So man, if you would just take a few minutes and, and tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from. Yeah, well, I've got my Southern twang and I don't hide it. I'm from East Tennessee. Uh, and in this pandemic, Katie and I are doing the ancestry thing, you know, because oh, it's, yeah. by the way, free right now, a little trial thing. So we're, we, we've been tracing my, my family are from the hills and okay. the Smoky Mountains, Cage Cove, East Tennessee. And, uh, and I fell in love with Jesus down there. You know, I, I ended up, uh, um, I grew up Methodist and, and there's still parts of that that I love. You're a Duke man. It sounds like, so I, you know, I, I love the Wesleyan fire, his commitment to, to justice. And, um, uh, you know, he said that if I find money in my hands, I get rid of it as quick as I can before Mm -hmm. it corrupts my heart. That was John Wesley, you know, I was talking to Methodist Bishop. So, and I said, the question is if John Wesley was alive, would he be Methodist right now? (laughs) But I, I think like, I, I love that. That's still a part of me, you know? Um, But then I, you know, I really started leaning in with the um, um, uh, charismatic movement because I, I, you know, I wanted to see folks that believe that the spirit's alive and at work and miracles are possible and God still heals people. And, uh, you know, liberates people. And so I, I got rebaptized because, you know, you can't sprinkle, you got to get dunked. And so I did all that, you know, and, and also the, you know, be baptized in the spirit. And, um, and, and, and there's still a part of that. That's, you know, who I am. Um, and I think in all of these traditions, there's things that you can just gems to hold on to. And there's the bones to spit out sometimes yeah. too, you know? Um, and I, um, like you said, I, I began to really see how much Jesus talked about those who are struggling and justice for the poor and the least of these widows and orphans. And, um, and some of that was challenging for me. I'll just tell you this, Zach, I was prom king, as you may know, because you've read some of my stuff, but others will be surprised to hear that. And I always just say, it just shows you what a small town that I'm from. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, I was going to, figure out a job I could make the most amount of money, do the least amount of work, do snowboarding as much as I could, just kind of live a pretty narcissistic life. And I really started seeing these things. Jesus said, if you want to be the greatest, become the least, you know, that we're to lean into the suffering of the world. And I, I mean, you know, gratefully, I I hadn't experienced a lot of suffering, but I knew that my life was not meant to be moving away from the pain. But when, what I saw in Jesus is a God that moves into the pain and and experiences the injustices and, and shows us a way to transcend them, you know? And, um, 
So I went to Eastern up here in Philly. That's what brought me up to Philly. Okay. Um, and I always love how Carl Bart said, we got to read the Bible in one hand, but we need to read the newspaper in the other mm-hmm. so that our faith doesn't just become a one-way ticket to heaven and an excuse to ignore the suffering world we live in. Um, yeah. So I, uh, while I was at Eastern, got really activated by a group of homeless families in Philly who had moved into an abandoned church building. Um, and boy, that sparked initially a student movement when we were 20 years old. And yeah. then we built our community uh, uh, around that. Now we've got sort of a village in this neighborhood, murals that are painted and community gardens and you know, kind of co-housing that we share and things like that. It's amazing. I love it. Man, that's so cool. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, and thank man. you for the, the work, man, that you, you're doing day in and day out, man. It's, um, it's making a difference and uh, appreciate it. Not just there in Philly, but like I said, making a difference in places like Austin as you've influenced other folks, man. So keep at it. I appreciate you. Well, we, we fan each other's flames. You know, I think that we, we sort of keep our hope alive. We stir each other's imagination and you, uh, sometimes you kind of feel like you're finishing each other's sentences. So I'm, I'm grateful to be connected with what y'all are up to. And we had tons of communities that uh, inspired us and that we began to learn from. Cause you know, the, the, the blind spot about being 20 years old is you can kind of think you're doing everything for the first time, yeah, you know, yeah. pioneer. We're going to, we're going to live out the early church for the first time in 2000 years. <laughs> and then you realize, wow, St. Francis and Claire did this in the 1200s, you know, and yeah. there's communities like the, the Catholic worker communities that have been yeah. doing this for a hundred years here in the U S. And so we, we really um, have built a network of communities. Some are young, some are old, but we're trying to learn from each other. Yeah. Oh, I love that, man. I, I, I feel that. And, and that community is so important, um, especially in times like these, you know, we're, we're, we're a little separated. Yeah. Right. And we need each other more than ever, man. Or at least we've realized, I think, maybe our need for each other more than ever during a time That's like right. this. Well, man, one of the things that you talk about a lot um, in your writings and your public speaking and stuff is this idea of a holistic ethic of life. Um, and it's something that I've really resonated with. And as I've talked about different facets of it with with our community, they've resonated with it as well. Um, and uh, and so I just would love for you to take a few minutes and teach us a little bit about that. Um, with the kind of red letter Christians undergirding of taking what Jesus said really seriously. Um, so yeah, would you just school us a little bit on it? Absolutely. I'd love to talk about that. It's, it's kind of the fire in my bones these days. And um, I will say that, you know, it really does begin with Jesus for me. That's what the red letters thing came from. Uh, just for folks that might not pick up on the, uh, the little, you know, image there, a lot of the Bibles have the words of Jesus highlighted in red. In fact, a lot of traditions, folks uh, stand during the gospel in reverence to it. So it's not that, you know, I think a lot of us cling to the idea that the whole Bible is the word of God. Uh, But there is a part of this that Jesus um, is kind of kind of becomes the center of everything, the lens through which we interpret the Bible and understand it, the lens through which we interpret the world and understand how to live in it. So Jesus really becomes a center of things. And when Bible verses are used, you know, to combat each other, Jesus becomes the referee and the sounding board. And that's, that's what I think I began to see is that um, there's a lot of Christianity or, or, or uh, things that, uh, 
take on the name of Christianity that don't pass the sniff test. They don't smell like Jesus. They don't feel like Jesus. And so um, uh, I like how Gandhi said, uh, they asked him about Christianity. He said, I love Jesus. I just wish the Christians acted more like him. Yeah. You know, so we're going, let's look at the Sermon on the Mount. Let's, let's look at the Beatitudes. Let's look at what Jesus lived and taught and allow that to form uh, who we are. Uh, so, um, and that's where, you know, when I began to see how kind of cultural Christianity had begun to shape my ideas, my theology, my politics, everything, I began to see how unchristlike some of our Christianity is, you know. Yeah. So I, um, uh, one example of that is, is, you know, I grew up very comfortable with guns, God and guns. You know, I mean, East Tennessee is where a country, well, Texas too, but, you know, Nashville, <laughs> you got country music, you got songs that say, this house is protected by the good Lord and a gun. And if you come yeah. uninvited, you'll meet them both, son. You know, like that, that was <laughs> our world. So I grew up very comfortable with guns. My dad was in the military. So I certainly didn't have any problem with military. I thought, you know, you, a, a good Christian loves our country, all those things. Um, and, and then I began, and I talked a lot about being pro-life, but I really was only thinking in terms of abortion. I, I, I debated people in my English classes. You know, I helped organize the Bush quail campaign. Just shows you how old I am, you know. But that, you know, like, <laughs> And so being pro-life meant being uh, anti-abortion. Um, and, and, and then I began to see that, wow, we've got a very narrow way that we think about what it means to be for life. Um, because it, sometimes we act like abortion is the only issue and, and that y we would actually be more accurate, some of us, to say we're anti-abortion than pro-life for the whole life. Like, uh, and so, it, you know, or that we're pro-birth rather than pro-life. Right. Because now, you know, the, the wild thing is that you can say that you're pro-life and still be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-war, anti-environment, you know, on the other side of life on almost every other issue and still say you're pro-life as long as you've got abortion rights. So I want a, I want a more robust ethic of life. You know, if we believe that every human being is made in the image of God, uh, is, is a, 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 a bearer of God's image in the world, like then, then um, there's all kinds of things that should matter to us because they matter to God. A, a hundred lives a day lost to gun violence. Um, the, the, the state not finding redemptive forms of justice, but punitive ones like the death penalty um, that now are to me become a real contradiction to this ethic of life. Um, and I, I want to say that to me, all these are very intersectional. They're very connected issues. Um, and to be pro-life, which I still am very comfortable with that language. I'm for life. But that, that means that I do, I do care about abortion. But I also care about uh, the, the movement for black lives. I care about welcoming immigrants. I, I care about, um, uh, you know, advocating for LGBTQ folks who are often at risk. And so all these things I think really matter because we believe every person's made in the image of God. And there are some great teachers I've had. You know, you mentioned I spent some time in India with Mother Teresa and she had a very uh, big uh, ethic of life. She was, she's known for her work um, uh, to end abortion, but she also called governors the night before an execution, you know, and said, yeah. I'm praying <laughs> for you to do what Jesus would do and show mercy, you know. Yeah. Um, so, and, and this is interesting too, because 
some for some of us this might sound new because of the kind of cultural environment we're in but this is really old stuff in fact a buddy of mine I, he owes me money because i've put this book out there so much but no, <laughs> this is a friend of mine ron sider wrote this book and it's the early church on killing the interesting thing about it is this is just the words of the early christians wow uh, in the first couple of hundred centuries and 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 there's chapters you know there's sections on what they said about abortion, what they, and they did talk about abortion, what they said about war and military service, what they said about um, the death penalty. And they did speak passionately against the death penalty. Um, and, and they also talked about the gladiatorial games because that was one cultural infatuation with violence that expressed itself in that way in their culture. So, but what you see is how consistently they, they advocated for life and stood against death. So for me, you know, th that's what's kind of led some of my work now is under that framework. It's Jesus-centered, um, but it's championing life in this more holistic sense. And it's also why I decided to hone in on a couple of issues like the death penalty and, abortion, uh, death penalty and gun violence, because I saw that on those two issues, Christians have actually not, been the champions for life we've been the obstacles of it and, and just to, to make that really clear like 85 percent of executions happen in the bible belt half wow. of them are there in texas almost half yeah. every year in texas and you see that the bible belt is the death belt literally the death penalty wouldn't stand a chance in america if it weren't for christians it's held on, not in spite of us, but because of us. And you're going, how does that happen? And, and I can say this because I've been on the other side of those issues, many of them. I was for the death penalty for a lot of my life and had the Bible verses to back it up. And so I kind of went back and, and, and took a closer look at a lot of that. Um, same with guns. You know, um, the, the highest gun-owning demographic in America is Christians. And, uh, and, and, you know, uh, and, and I, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm not one that's just trying to take everybody's hunting rifle or, you know, overturn the Second Amendment. I just think that we can do a better job at protecting life than we do right now. And this is very personal. Almost every corner of my neighborhood, we have the collective memory and the murals to show it of who died on those corners. And there comes a point where you just go, man, it, it doesn't have to be this way, you know. And, and yeah. so uh, I, I really want to be a champion of life. Um, and have a better conversation about guns and the death penalty. And I'd love to see Christians in the forefront of those, those conversations. Yeah, man, I, I, I really appreciate that. Um, well, you, you talked about um, coming from the other side of the issue, specifically around the death penalty. And, um, and so you, you talked about how the death penalty wouldn't have a chance in our country if it weren't for the continued advocating of it um, and for it by people of faith, by Christians. Um, you kind of asked this question, but but I, I would love for you to kind of, I'll ask it and then you answer it a little bit more of like, why do you think that is traditionally? If you have kind of the early church really speaking out against death in every form, including the death penalty, um, and you have that undergirded by the, the words of Jesus and the holistic life ethic um, that he brought and the kingdom of God brings, how do you think we got to a place where um, it became so... Um, normal to advocate for Christians to advocate for the death penalty. Oh man, this is good. We're going to get into it. It's good. <laughs> we, we, we might need a round two, but, uh, 
uh, I, I, it's exactly the right question. You know, how do we get here? And there's, there's, I, I think there, there's a few different angles that I, I would suggest on this. Um, and so one of them, I'm not going to get too thick into the, you know, the church history, but I, I do believe that a part of what happened during our Christianity is we got confused. Hmm. Uh, around the period of Constantine, um, you began to see Christians who were this marginalized uh, group that were persecuted, uh, you know, executed. Uh, many of them were crucified like Jesus was. They were killed. Um, they were a persecuted minority that began to get power and influence. And, um, and Constantine was the manifestation of that. I mean, he was, it wasn't just about him, just like now in America, it's not just about Trump. Which, these are principalities and powers that are at work. But uh, when Constantine um, kind of made Christianity a, the official religion of the empire, right? But then is fighting wars and putting the cross on it. We're exchanging the cross for weapons. Hmm. Um, and the persecuted become the persecutors. Yeah. We begin yeah. to lose who we are, right? Yeah. Um, and even Constantine saw that paradox. Mm -hmm. He he yeah. held out his baptism till he died on his deathbed, right? Because yeah. he That's saw true. this, like, how do you reconcile this, right? Yeah. So, um, and then I think there's iterate, like, it, it's like there's constantly this, this battle that we even see manifest itself in, in unique ways in America right now. Um, but, you know, during the Reformation, I think part of what happened, I ain't going to get too thick in this, like I said, I didn't want anybody falling asleep. But I think what happened, <laughs> part of what happened was there was a very valid critique of the papal authority and the power of Rome and the centrality of power in the Catholic Church. Um, and there's many valid critiques of indulgences, all this, you know, stuff that needed to be critiqued. But then there was the transfer of that power from Rome to the state. Yeah. And you see this kind of blanket, blank check to yeah. state power that Martin Luther and other, others, I think, uh, contributed to. And Martin Luther's often called, uh, there's wonderful things that he said. And there's also, everybody's got their that seeing through a glass dimly, as they say, right? Yeah, Brother, that's and, right. So, that's right. But he said that the hand of, he's, he's known as the, the um, celebrity endorsement of the death penalty hmm. and of state sanctioned killing. Because yeah. he said that the hand of the executioner is not only the hand of the state, but it's the hand of God. Hmm. Wow. And of course you can see how some of that um, made way it wasn't martin luther equals nazi germany but you can see how those principalities and powers continued to affect our thinking so that we continue to do terrible things and i i would say that some of that um has unique expressions in america um yeah. especially when you think of our 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 um history of racism and slavery Mm -hmm. um, and how we created a theological narrative right. um, to defend that, right? Um, so not only is the Bible Belt the death belt, but the same states that held on to slavery the longest and used the Bible to defend it right. are the same states that have held on to the death penalty the longest and used the Bible to defend it. So, so it can't be separated from our racial history as we talk yeah. about uh, the death penalty, which is my friend Brian Stevenson said is the direct descendant 
of lynching, where lynchings were happening a hundred years ago is exactly where executions continue to happen today. So these histories are intertwined, but you start to look at the death penalty just objectively and people scratch their heads and they go, there's no evidence that this deters crime. I mean, someone that's going to do something so horrific that it warrants the death penalty is not thinking rationally. Like, right. and they're not thinking, wow, I'm doing this in Texas. I might get the death penalty. I should rethink this decision. You know, yeah. so the, the money that's spent um, is extravagant. That's why there's a whole movement of conservatives concerned about the death penalty that just on a fiscal level right. say we could do better with our money we could serve victims families better right. than you know trying to do so so there's really not many reasons that you would hold out yeah. the death penalty except this one and this is what i found that was so wrenching is that god wants the death penalty that's what people think right mm -hmm. that god ordained it uh I get emails that say, and there's even been politicians in our country that have said, how can God be against the death penalty when God used the death penalty to save the world? Mm -hmm. And you're like, wow, whoa. And that, that's why I, I think it's so important to talk about this because this is about the death penalty. And last night there was an execution in Missouri. And, and interestingly enough, my wife showed me this, the governor of Missouri, Governor Parsons on his website, it says he is a he is passionate about people and passionate about Christ, mm. and once again you say that we really got to dive into this because the people that are defending the death penalty are using the Bible to do it, and that's why it's so important to talk about because you know there's other layers to this I think uh, of very problematic theology that can be yeah. very violent and can I think undermine the very work that Jesus did on the cross. I mean, the, the, a very central conviction for me is that Jesus came not for the righteous, but for the sinners to heal right. the world of violence, that nobody's beyond redemption where sin abounds, grace abounds. You know, so I'm a I'm not supposed to get the preacher, Zach. So you I'm, absolutely I'm can. I love that. <laughs> and I, I think if we, if we begin to see the cross as where Jesus invites um, evil and violence to do its worst so that he can show a better way. Um, yes. Not He's not partnering with it. He is doing battle against it. That's what really, I think, changed things for me as I began to understand really what is happening and on the cross and atonement and all of that stuff changes. And you talked about a bunch of fascinating things there, man. And, and there's so many um, reasons that the, the, the fellow you, you talked about in Missouri last night maintained his innocence up until the point yes. that he was, and, and we have documented cases with DNA that we've executed innocent people. Um, and, you know, but I think one of the most fascinating things and, and it is that the, the toll this takes, the toll the death penalty takes on the people who still live, who are involved in it, um, yeah. I think shows that it's not something that God um, desires to have people die. Because you talk to executioners, the people who actually perform, and they have significant trauma, horrible trauma from being the ones that have to actually perform the death penalty. You obviously have the families of the ones that die, but yeah. you also have the families of the victims who in many cases are pleading that the death penalty not be enforced um, because they know, and a lot of times that it's influenced by their faith, the reason they plead for those things, because you've talked to victims' families who have had the perpetrator executed 
And a lot of them that I've even seen interviews where they've said, you know, I, I was for it. I wanted them to die. But now a year later, I, I wish I wish we hadn't. It's, it's, it wrecks me. I think about it every single day. And it's not like it's because Jesus said, you know, it's not an eye for an eye. It's turn the other cheek like these are those are conflicting things. Yeah. Um, so, man, I, I, I just really appreciate that perspective and your. Um, yeah, man. Yeah. And how, how Jesus influenced it is. Right. And how um, obviously, um, you know, politics are, are things that, you know, the, the polis, the people. Right. This is things that influence all of us. Um, but that for me, it, it doesn't need to be something that's partisan focused. It's something that's Jesus focused and Jesus centered yeah. for me, you know. Absolutely. And, and I, that, that's that's exactly right. And uh, I, I often say, you know, that, that one of the one of the things that Christians have always had is this peculiar political imagination and allegiance. Right. Like uh, you see that in the book of Acts. These these Christians, they're they're claiming an emperor other than Caesar. You know, that's what right. they're accused of. And 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 every time they were declaring Jesus is Lord. They were saying Caesar is not. They were pledging their allegiance to Jesus. And so, uh, you know, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. As as the old hymn goes, it's not in the donkey of the Democrats or the elephant of the GOP. It's in in the Lamb of God and Jesus. But that does mean that we're not so uh, detached from the world that we're just... Because I think the citizens in heaven uses was actually to uh, uh, for us to reimagine how we live on earth and so many of those images were you know in the darkness salt on the earth we're we're to end the world but not of the world there's this idea that we're to engage not disengage you know uh, stanley Howarwas, you know our brother duke he said uh uh, we're we're meant to be like air fresheners in the bathroom, you know. <laughs> but but we're to inf- like like we're to seek first the kingdom of God, and that means like what does it look like for God's kingdom? God's and that was political language, like God the the governance of God. If God ruled everything, if God ruled Texas, would it look like? Would it have like uh, like what? Is, so that that's seeking the kingdom of God, um, and. Uh, uh, but you're right, you know, as, as, as we were, what moved me was not just, I think, you know, sometimes our head is an obstacle to what our heart feels. You know, people, uh, even Joelstein there in, in Texas has said, there's something about the death penalty that doesn't quite feel right, you know. Um, and, and yet, sometimes, like, our heart moves and our, our head becomes your idea. Well, you know, God's given the state this power. There's these things that we kind of tell ourselves. That's why we've got to engage both. You know, we've got to engage our theology and our mind, and we've also got to engage our hearts because um, they're, uh, and, and that's what happened. I listened, you know, I listened to victims of murder, murder victims, family members that either their loved ones were killed they or like Suzanne Bossler that I was with last night at the vigil. Uh, she survived the crime that killed her dad. I mean, she was stabbed multiple times, mm. but she moved forward going like, more violence is not going to heal the wounds of violence. Her dad was a pastor and he said he would never want the death penalty. Like yeah. that, the man that did it needs to be in jail. Like he did something terrible and he's still very dangerous, but we don't have to kill him. And for Christians, we always hold out this hope that God might redeem or right. heal a, a violent, uh, you know, hate filled heart. Um, and many of these people that are creating violence have done violence. But then there's issues of innocence. I met so many folks that were uh, innocent 
my friend in Dume in Tennessee, in the state of Tennessee, was convicted of murder in Tennessee, and he had never even been to the state of Tennessee until he came to court to defend himself. Wow. And he was convicted and could wow. have been executed, right? He finally proved his innocence. My friend Derek Jameson, all convicted of murder, was three hours for his from his execution, had six execution dates, and then the prosecution hid evidence that they were forced to release, and it Wow. unequivocally proved his innocence 30 pieces of evidence wow. i mean so there's kate you know there, and you think like what how it raises this question to how much do we trust our government with the irreversible power of life and death and we certainly know that we killed innocent people i think it's very likely we just saw that happen last night um with with walter arkey barton in, in missouri um, but for every, this is a stunning fact for every nine uh, executions, there's been one exoneration. Wow. And so the, the, the fact that for every nine executions we've carried out, we've, we've gotten one wrong. And you think like, what if every 10 planes that took off, right. One of them crashed, right. Yeah. You'd go, Whoa. That's we're not doing something record, wrong, you know. Yeah, like, what if you're that wrong. person? You know, what somebody, somebody last night said, "What if you're somebody's giving you a, a parachute?" And they're, they're like, "You, you, you may not make it on." You know, so, um, yeah. So I think that you know the question of innocence is certainly a huge one. Um, what it does to the executioners, I have a chapter in my book on um, uh, the haunted executioners, and one of those sadly lost his life uh, in COVID. Uh, uh, from from COVID during this this pandemic, he, it was actually from his church choir that um, I think three of them got or something. Jerry Givens died, but he executed sixty people, I think it was, and wow. and then you know had this powerful conviction as a man of faith that this is not the way to do it. Ron McAndrew, the same thing. He was an executioner that haunted literally by the ghosts of the folk, like by the images, as, you know, of yeah. folks that he had uh, executed. And he's still a hard, tough on crime guy. I was just listening to him. You know, he's like, you do the crime, you should do the time. But when he talks about the death penalty, he's like, this is something altogether different. And, yeah. and he said there was no good way to kill somebody because he, yeah. he went from electric chair to lethal injection because he thought it might be a more sanitized way to yeah. take someone's life. And just you walk away going, no, we aren't meant to kill. You know, when we do it, there's something terribly in us that that is is haunted and should be haunted by at the end of the day what's on a death certificate uh, for someone who is executed the manner of death is homicide mm. homicide by state legal homicide they were killed yeah. and uh, i think of cyprian one of those great voices of the early church a bishop you know he said when an individual kills another individual we call it evil but why do we sanctify it when the church, when the government does it in mass? We somehow, you know, create this, this must be God's will, you know, whether it's yeah. the death penalty or, or war. Or, so I, I think, yeah, these, these are big issues, but they're, they're so important for us to talk about because that's a, and Jesus to me is a sinner. Like you said, as Colossians says, Jesus made a spectacle of death, yeah. uh, you know, on the cross. Yes. He exposed it, put it all on display. Like this is what we are capable of. This is what state violence is capable of in collusion with religious uh, leadership, theologies. And so, you know, he shows it all, puts it on display for us. But it's so important if we don't, if we aren't careful, we miss the point. 
to subvert it with love and forgiveness, right. even to those who are executing him. So every time we're worshiping Jesus, we should have a suspicion. <laughs> Yeah. At least a suspicion about the death penalty, about violence, because Jesus absorbs all the violence of the world in order to triumph over it with love. And that's who we, you know, worship and who. Yes. So, yeah, thank you, brother, for this conversation. Yeah. No, that's so good, Shane. I, 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 we'll, we'll end it there, man, because that is, uh, man, that's so good. I think when I think about the idea you talked about bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. And that's exactly how Jesus taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if we really think about it like that, like you said, if, if Jesus was in charge of, of Texas or the United States or the world, if this was his kingdom, what would it really look like? And then we pursue those things as Christians. Um, yeah. And so will you just close us in, in prayer um, yeah. and uh, pray for, for our church, for the kingdom of God to come and uh, for, you know, our, our nation and our world. I will. And I'll, and I'll just say real quickly before we pray, folks that might be listening in that maybe are just barely holding on or they're kind of tired of Christianity that doesn't look like Jesus. And um, I think that don't give up on Jesus because of the uh, embarrassing things that Christians have done in his name. I mean, even during Jesus's time, his, deepest confrontations were with the religious elite who he called a brood of vipers and he said the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you yeah. so these are these are this is an ancient struggle and i i think in this country we've got some deep principalities and powers at work and, and part of what we've done is we put in god we trust on our money in a country that uh often looks like the seven deadly sins and does things that look very contradicting to the things that yeah. Jesus was about. So we're in danger of using the Lord's name in vain and kind of inoculating people with this American nationalism that's camouflaging itself as Christianity. But Jesus is the center of everything. And uh, so let, let's pray on that note. Amen. Thank you, brother. Lord, deliver us from the counterfeit versions of of uh, what we're meant to be and where we put our trust. I pray that you would protect us from the principalities and powers, as your scripture says, those forces that work against life and love and healing. Thank you, Jesus, for exposing sin, uh, by suffering from it and especially from showing us holding a mirror up to us of the violence that we're capable of we pray that that your life and your death and your resurrection would do something to us that it would uh, reshape our imagination that it would um, reshape how we think about violence that it would move us with empathy and compassion for those who are suffering from all forms of violence from poverty from those on the border immigrants and refugees so many others that you you said whatever you do to them you do to me mm -hmm. so make us people who care 
about the most vulnerable people in our world, in our country, on our border, in our city. Thank you for this community that is listening to a harmony of voices that are trying to sing the song of your love together. Continue to weave us together as you pray, Jesus, that we would be one as you are one, that more and more folks would know of your love. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you again, brother, for the time. Um, man, I can't wait to, to do it again sometime. And if you're ever in Austin, man, you got a, a place to stay and somebody that'll buy you a drink, man. Thank you, my brother. Yeah, keep in touch. Keep me uh, in the loop. I'll be uh, an extended church community member over here. But uh, love y'all. Bless you. And I'll, I'll see you another time, I hope. Love it. Thank you, Shane. Bye-bye, man. See you, buddy.